below us, you are above us, and thank you, God, that we can have faith and confidence in one thing, but praise God, it's you. In the name of your son, amen, and you may be seated. We are, uh, we're very, yes, you're very excited about so this excited. series. <clears throat> you really are. <clears throat> um, my name's Joe Davis, um, lead pastor here at Grace Life, Sarasota, and uh, we're continuing with this series called Mark the Evangelist. For those of you confused by the picture, if you weren't here last week, we started, oh, well, I didn't start it. This guy named Mark the Evangelist started this Twitter feed uh, last week, and he's been tweeting all week. We'll get, some more, get to some of those tweets later about stuff that's going on. The idea behind it was that the gospel of Mark is a very quick-moving gospel, and it reads like a modern-day Twitter feed would. Everything is very short and to the point, and it moves fast. So when I was studying, getting ready for this series, I kept thinking, man, this sounds like a Twitter, uh, a tweet, a tweeter, a tweet, a tweet, right? This week, uh, we're titled, titled the number two message in this series, Something New in the Wilderness. By the way, if you haven't followed Mark the at Mark the Evangel 1, Mark the Evangelist on Twitter, you should do that. He's watching. Something new in the wilderness. This is the message. We're going through verses 1 through 8. But before we do that, let me explain to you. This is actually a picture of the wilderness <clears throat> where John the Baptist was preaching. It's in Israel. There's the River Jordan, especially during the dry time of season. It's just kind of a little trickle. But you can see it's a pretty barren place, right? When we think the wilderness, we think of this glorified version. This National Geographic version where there's cute little adorable black bears who would never harm anyone. <laughs> And little deer that, that lean down and pant and, and drink from the water and look up and smile at you. That's what we think about the wilderness, right? It's beautiful. The mountains, it's gorgeous. And in the fall, the leaves change the wilderness. But that's not the wilderness that we're talking about today. That's not the wilderness that we, just, we learn about in the Gospel of Mark chapter 1. It's this wilderness. And there's something creepy Something strange, something kind of eerie about the wilderness. This barrenness, this vast space, these unknown things, these unknown dangers, the very harsh conditions. Like I said, it's not the National Geographic version. People actually die in this wilderness, and it's frightening. And the wilderness, as we know it, can be a place of physical or even emotional discomfort. A place where our plans go awry, where the unknown takes place. A place where things catch us by surprise and not just, oh, that's a nice surprise. They're scary surprises. It's a place of isolation, heartbreak. The wilderness can be a place of pain any number of things that bring us to the point of desperation. But it's this same harsh, barren wilderness that creates genuine humility when by God's sovereign grace, we meet him there. Spiritually and earthly speaking, the most victorious, most important story of all humanity of all time begins right here, right there in the wilderness in Israel. So let's read the passage today. Mark chapter 1, verse 1 through 8. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face 
who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the countryside of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to that wilderness that I just showed you. Going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt. In other words, he was an icon, a fashion statement. He wore a leather belt around his waist and he ate big grasshoppers and honey. Just sounds like a lovely guy, doesn't he? And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. So before we get started, what we do is we look at each passage from the history. What about man? What did he do? The spiritual or theology? What about God? What does he do? And then we look at the personal or devotional. What about me? What am I supposed to do? For us to really understand this passage, we have to understand the history of Jews and the wilderness. And to appreciate today's passage, we must learn how to connect with how Israel saw the wilderness, especially in the Old Testament. In spite of the harshness of the wilderness, which the picture we just showed, many Old Testament prophets and Israeli kings longed for the wilderness. Maybe not necessarily the wilderness itself, but the time of the wilderness era where God created Israel as a nation. The wilderness was the place where new things would begin where God refined his people and God spoke to them directly. It was a place where God in the wilderness would reassure them no matter what had happened, no matter what they had done, no matter what the world was doing, they were his people and he was their God. And they had this, believe it or not, all throughout the prophets and all through the Old Testament, they had this nostalgic affinity for the harshness of the wilderness. Not necessarily the harshness, but because that's where God often spoke to them. This bittersweet love affair with this harsh place that inflicts earthly discomfort, but brought spiritual healing is all throughout the Old Testament. And time after time after time, patriarchs and prophets face despair, running from enemies in the wilderness only to hear from God. A great example, after they left Egypt, they spent 40 years there. And so now that you understand the affinity that Jews might have had for the wilderness, we see now that there are 500 years of silence. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. The prophet writes it. And he predicts that God would send Elijah the prophet when the time was right. But Malachi dies about the 5th century B.C., starting a long period where God is not talking to them anywhere, wilderness or no. He would not speak for hundreds of years. But Jews who knew scripture knew that sooner or later, God would reassure them that they were still his people, that he would send a prophet like Elijah to declare. And after decades of Roman oppression, Israel needed a new beginning as a nation. But it wasn't going to be the beginning that they thought. 
And they had looked forward to this time when the Lord would reconstitute his people in the wilderness because it says so in the Old Testament. He would give them a fresh start and save them as he had once redeemed them from Egypt, from Persia, from their own sinfulness. And then enter the prophecies of Malachi and Isaiah and many others. Malachi chapter 4 verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. He says, before things get really exciting, I'm going to send Elijah back. Remember, Elijah is a prophet that was already dead. They also knew from Isaiah that this Elijah-like prophet would come out of the wilderness. As a matter of fact, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So strung together between those passages and probably three dozen other, they had all these loose ends from the prophets, but they really didn't know how to string them all and hang them all and tie them all together. They assumed that this prophet would announce the restoration of the great kingdom of David and Solomon. That was the promise of the prophet after all, right? But there are other pieces of these prophecies that didn't quite hang together with that narrative. He's going to be born in Bethlehem? A king? Right. He's going to be a, from Nazareth? Nothing good comes from Nazareth. He's going to bring all the nations into our kingdom? Well, who wants that? We want to be on our own. So while there was hope, there was still this unknown mystery. How does Nazareth and Bethlehem and all nations fit into this story about this prophet that's supposed to come back in the wilderness? Here's what they couldn't see church. It was the kingdom of heaven that was about to burst on the scene with a new covenant and a new promise. And that brings us to this part of the history. God speaks in the wilderness. Suddenly, a man dressed like Elijah with the camel hair and the belt and the, 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 the grasshoppers and the honey and all that stuff. He's preaching about repentance and restoration to God. And there was nothing alluring about John on the surface, John the Baptist, how he was dressed. He certainly did not smell very good. There was only one thing that was different about him than all the other crazy people that lived in the wilderness. And that's where they all lived. It was the message of Jesus. He wasn't preaching this incredible story of repentance in the population centers. He wasn't preaching in the temple or the town square where everybody would be sure to hear him as they walk by doing their shopping. No, he sets up camp in the middle of nowhere. Nowhere. The wilderness where nobody wants to go. And he just starts to preach. His message was so compelling, John the Baptist, so disruptive, so bold that the news of his powerful sermons spread all over the countryside. Listen, there's this homeless, camel hair dressed, leather belt, grasshopper eating dude out in the wilderness and the guy can preach. So people were flocking to this desolate place of discomfort and despair, a place that was reserved for the outcasts of society. People with leprosy, People with mental illness, people possessed by demons, <clears throat> people who just didn't quite fit into the norms of culture. 
They all lived in the desert and the wilderness. And this is where John is preaching. And what is he preaching? He's preaching a scandalous message. Scandalous if you're Jewish. He's, he's preaching repentance for all. See, most Jews were waiting for this next prophet to come and rescue them from the tyranny of Rome. They were waiting for a message about God's special plan for the nation of Israel as a people. But John's message was the anything but political, anything but ethnic, or anything but sociological. It was spiritual. And John is preaching in the desert about baptism, about repentance for all, and it's scandalous. To require Jews to be baptized meant being Jewish didn't make you one of God's people anymore. And you know that people lived in fear of the temple, right? Especially the temple leaders. Yet they took a chance to take this treacherous journey all the way out to the wilderness to hear this guy preaching and saying, you don't need the temple anymore. You need the spirit of God. You need repentance. You need baptism. You need forgiveness. They were sinners, just like the Gentiles, just like the Roman usurpers. And they needed to return to the Lord. And God's true people were repentant sinners who loved the Lord and desperately turned to his grace and not relied upon their heritage. God's salvation was not based upon one's earthly descent, but for those led by his spirit to repent and to trust in the work of Christ to come. That's the history. Pretty powerful stuff. Let's talk about the spiritual side. What about God? What does he do? I want to talk about God in the wilderness. Like I said before, this incredible message, right? This, this amazing scene that I've just described for you doesn't start in the population centers where everybody preached. Everybody preached in Jerusalem. That's where you get a following. That's where the money is. The demons lived out in the wilderness. Tons of hermits in the wilderness. Mentally ill, ostracized people. And as I said before, John was smelly. He wore animal skins. He lived in the desert, and his hair and his beard, the scripture says, were disgusting. Matted together. But this movement of Jesus Christ starts with a dirty man preaching in a place nobody lived or ever wanted to go. You see, God's people weren't coming to be in the wilderness. That's not, that's not why they were going. They were coming to hear a message. These people are responding because they are God's chosen children. That's the only explanation. There was no big temple. John didn't have a big slick presentation with PowerPoint. There was no great worship band. It was just John in the desert preaching repentance. What made John so appealing that these people would make this ridiculous, risky trip? Because the images portrayed by the prophets, this is amazing, don't, don't lose this. The image portrayed by the prophets made him somehow feel familiar, comfortable. This is what God does to make John the Baptist credible. Go back to the verses I shared with you before. 
Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day the Lord comes. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make, his, uh, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. See, what God does, he didn't just ordain their repentance. He ordained the means that he would use, which was a prophet that looked like and sounded like Elijah. Now, John denies that he's literally Elijah. He says, I'm not really Elijah. I'm like Elijah. And later, Jesus says himself, John was a metaphor that he was like Elijah. But by connecting John to the voice that prepares the way of Jehovah in Isaiah, Mark identifies, this is very important, Mark identifies very clearly that this Jesus he's getting ready to write this book about, he's God. The deity of Christ is being established. And John is declaring that he is preparing the way for God himself. He is declaring the deity of Christ. Church, this is so important. He wasn't just another good teacher who did some miracles. He says the one coming after him will not baptize with water. I'm just using this as a symbol. But he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. More on this incredible truth next week. You're going to love it. Actually, I really wanted to preach it this week, but I can't go out of order. John's work has marked the beginning of God's reformation of Israel. And it's not just Israel, the Jews. It's Israel, God's people. The new era of blessing the prophets had anticipated. So let's talk about the personal side of this now. I want to talk about how God uses the wilderness. So this was the social media campaign I did this week, the Sunday sermon preview I do every week. Even though we hate being in the wilderness, it's often where God starts new things. See, the gospel of Jesus started in the wilderness, a place most religious people wouldn't have expected it to. The temple would have been much more convenient, much more comfortable, See, this is the problem, church. We want to hear from God. But we want it to be comfortable. We want it to be on our terms. Our schedule. I mean, it would be much easier, right, God, if you could fit in your revelation and your new works to us on the time that we've scheduled on Sunday morning from 1030 to 1130. Okay, I'll get there 1015 for donuts. Then get started, God. It'd be much easier if we could come up with the date and time to hear from him. If we could schedule it. But often, God chooses to use the discomfort and the fear of the wilderness to reveal his message of hope. So some of you guys have been following Mark the Evangelist on Twitter. I have some of the tweets. He was busy this week doing a lot of tweets. I don't know what's going on with him, but he's been restless. So... First one, he says, update on the wilderness. People are making a long trip to hear this John the Baptist. There is nothing here. No hotels, restaurants, gas stations, nothing. Surprised they even have a cell signal. They just can't get enough of John's powerful preaching. Crazy. Later on this week, he tweets, update. John the Baptist says the way to God is repentance and forgiveness of sins. That's not exactly what the temple guys say. I bet they come after him soon. I'm a little nervous for John, but he is bold. Down to 1%. Got to find a power outlet. 
Wilderness update, the whole countryside is coming to John, confessing their sins in public. Many tears of joy as he baptizes us. It's so moving, I can't explain what I feel. When he baptized me, I still had my phone in my pocket. New phone, lost contacts, inbox your digits. <laughs> See, it's worth following. You really ought to get on. So why, why am I using these tweets like this? Because throughout this series, I'm going to try to give you a sense of how it might have felt if you were one of those hopeful waiters for the prophet in the wilderness. I want you during the week to not forget about what we're talking about on Sunday morning, but to think through what would be my reaction if I heard this guy was preaching. Would the Spirit of God be calling me and motivating me to go into the wilderness to hear this message, or would I just stay in the comfort of the temple? first thing I want to talk about with the personal side is I want to talk about how God has called us to the wilderness. John 10, 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. Question, if by faith you were waiting for the voice of the one in the wilderness, would you have made this trip? I mean, even though we don't like the wilderness, his sovereign grace, and this is what's so great about the sovereign power of God in salvation, it's not a decision that man makes, it's a decision that God makes. His sovereign grace draws us in to hear from him, to connect with him on his terms where he wants to speak. That's exactly what he did for all those that were inexplicably drawn to hear this strange, ridiculous character, John, in the desert. The only way that could have happened is if God had called them into the wilderness. Something in them was stirred to such a degree they said, you know, I don't know what's going on out there, but something in my heart says, I got to hear it. That's supernatural. So we see that we are called in the wilderness. He does the same thing today. But you know what else happens? We are enlightened in the wilderness. It seems that's how God likes to work, I guess. He calls us into the wilderness so he can call us out of darkness. Let me say that again. He calls us into the wilderness so that he can call us out of darkness. See, the wilderness does a great job of exposing what's really in your heart in a way that comfort never could, in a way the temple never could. And our awareness of spiritual things in the wilderness when God calls us there becomes more acute. We become more in tune with God when we are there. In fact, the co-author of this gospel, we talked about that last week, the gospel of Mark is from Peter's perspective, probably dictating to Mark, explaining to Mark, and Mark is writing these down. The co-author of this gospel, Peter, makes a direct reference to next week's passage about the wilderness and the effect it has. You ready? It's going to blow you away. 2 Peter chapter 119. We have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in the dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Peter confirms this is exactly what happened with John in the wilderness. God was enlightening them. They weren't enlightening themselves. God was using 
an unusual character to show them grace and mercy that they desperately needed. But you know what else happens in the wilderness? I mean, sure, we are called to it. We are enlightened in it. But we are also made new in the wilderness. Isaiah chapter 43, verse 19. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not see it? I will make a way in the wilderness and the rivers in the desert. A direct prophecy of John the Baptist. It's amazing to me how God uses this ridiculously bare and painful place called the wilderness to save his people. It is the place, the wilderness, where we are confronted with our own mortality. We are also confronted by our own immorality. And we are also confronted with our hopeless depravity. It is the place that gives us a proper perspective of our size and role in this universe. It is the perfect antidote for narcissism, spiritual, religious, or otherwise. It is the place that creates a willingness in us to do anything necessary to hear directly from God. It is the place where we desire connection with his presence in a supernatural, life-changing, new work kind of way through Jesus Christ. That's why the wilderness was the best place for John to be. And that's why the wilderness can be the best place for us to hear from God. Because it is the place where God starts new things. Church, are you scared of the wilderness? I am. I've been in it. In many ways, I'm in it right now. And I hate it. I hate the discomfort. I hate the feelings of butterflies in my stomach. When I know I'm getting bad news every day about things, it's, it's discouraging, it's frightening. But I cannot deny that I am more acute to God's calling than I am when things are going great. Therefore, I love the wilderness. Because I know that's where I'm going to hear from God. And he's going to do something new in my life. Dad, I want to thank you so much for what you did through this humble man, John the Baptist, for how you used him to call people out of darkness into light. Thank you for how you used the wilderness to make us more aware, more acutely understanding the power of your grace and mercy, making us more aware of your presence. And I pray that as we continue this study of the gospel of Mark, that you would blow us away and break our hearts with truth, It starts something new. Amen.